You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. In the five o'clock service, we have been moving through the book of Exodus. One of the things that uh, impresses me about uh, new students at Beeson is one of the first things they say that they learn by coming to Divinity School is how the whole Bible hangs together, that it's one great drama from beginning to end, the truest of true stories, the story of redemption. And part of the concern, I think, in teaching the Word of God is that people stay in the story. They understand that God has worked, and he has prefaced all of his actions really by showing us types and events that point to Jesus Christ. Exodus is all about the fact that Yahweh, the Lord God, is real. And everything in this book points to the reality of God and God breaking in on humanity. And it's really important to understand how Israel is used by God. God takes a beleaguered people. He's called them as the children of Abraham. And he's given them a blessing to be a blessing to the nations. And they end up in Egypt. Joseph, the son of Jacob, brings the Israelites to Egypt in order to stay the starvation that they were experiencing back home. And they end up being enslaved for 430 years in Egypt. The Lord sees their oppression. They have become numerous. They are very much a part of the Egyptian economy. Egyptians have become dependent upon these Israelites. And as they grew larger, they became meaner and more oppressive. And finally, God sees their need, their desperate need for salvation, for redemption. And he tells Moses, calls out Moses and Aaron to be his spokespeople before Pharaoh. And it's really interesting to read that Exodus story and just read through those ten plagues. An ecological disaster, the first six, followed by, by hail and by darkness, and finally by the death of the firstborn, both human and animal in Egypt. And Pharaoh finally says, go, leave. We're not going to be able to survive your presence here. And the Israelites depart after celebrating what is called the Passover, a sacrificial lamb. They had their cloaks on. They had their walking sticks. They were ready to travel. They ate in haste. And they depart. And then God gives them directions that seem confusing. Instead of heading straight for Canaan, he heads them to the wilderness. 
And we're told two different reasons for this, both of which are in harmony. The first reason is that if they head to, uh, if they head to Canaan, to the promised land, they'll immediately have to start fighting. And God is concerned that if they start fighting, they're going to lose interest quickly and they're going to want to go back to Egypt. And so he heads, on a, he heads them on a circuitous route toward the wilderness. And Pharaoh thinks, they're really crazy. They don't know what direction to go in. And that hardens Pharaoh's heart even further. So Pharaoh and the army head out after them. And the Israelites see this army coming. And the Lord God says to Moses, strike the Red Sea. And the sea parts. And there's all sorts of, I think, really good substantive understanding of how this could actually happen naturally, supernaturally. Because the Hebrews made no distinction between that which was natural and that which was supernatural. God was in nature and God had power over that nature. And they, the Red Sea parts, a wall of water, they cross on dry land, and they exit Egypt. And it is a picture, a type of salvation that's going to be fulfilled through time where the real way that God is going to use Israel is through that nation, that beleaguered, enslaved, yet liberated nation through whom the Messiah will come. We read in the end of chapter 14, Thus the Lord saved Israel. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And then Moses and the people sang, sang a song. Worship is our response. It's always our response to what God has done. It's always after the fact, after the fact of the event, after the fact of redemption, after the fact of salvation. Worship is always in response to what God has done. And very simply, Moses and the people of Israel sang. There is something about human nature that does find the necessity of music to express itself. It's interesting, my daughter uh, and son-in-law, just in the last few weeks, attended two concerts. Uh, the stadium in San Diego is only about 10 minutes from their house. And they attended a U2 concert and a Coldplay concert. There's just something about the power of music that brings people together. And ironically, my daughter really liked the Coldplay concert much better than U2 because of its playfulness, its community. There was actually much less drinking and much less marijuana at the Coldplay concert than at the U2 concert. But music is a part of our expression. And in worship, music puts to, I don't know, puts to emotion really what is pumping in one's heart. 
And it's both the mind and the heart that get united. It's hard to tell in the worship folder that this is poetry. This is lyrics. I mean, we lose it in translation. But uh, it's, it's a poetic expression. So it begins this way. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. We sing in Christ alone, my only hope. He is my light, my strength, my song. We're going to sing a song patterned after Exodus 15 in a few minutes, and that song draws that same line out. My life, my strength, my song. And as a physician friend of mine explained to me, you kind of need him in that order. My light, the illumination of the truth, my strength, I have become dependent on what the Lord has done for me, and now it becomes my song. My father um, tended not to verbalize his faith, but he had a tenor voice and he sang his faith. And I remember more the testimony of his song, of the hymns he liked, of the solos he sang in church, than I do his sort of uh, verbal testimony. Song is very essential for us. And worship also takes in the big picture of what God has done. Worship is based on what God has done, and worship takes in the big picture of what God is doing. It's really helpful to understand that the strategy that Israel had and that God had during the time of Israel was really very different from the strategy that Jesus incorporated and used. There is a, in a way, there's a tension between those strategies because God used Israel to fight. Now this song in Exodus 15 is all about God fighting for Israel. And very little, nothing is really said about Moses and the Israelites. This does not make Moses out to be a hero. It's all what God has done for Israel. And we kind of know that about salvation. It's nothing about what we have done, but it's about what God has done redemptively for us. The big picture, though, is you have to understand that, I think we have to understand that God used Israel in a very physical way to establish an ethnicity, to establish a nation to establish a people. And he did that in order to bless the nations by sending through them the Messiah. But then when Jesus came, it was not a national ent entity. It was not an ethnic entity. It was go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Nothing about imposition. Nothing about fighting. Nothing about taking territory or place. And the strategy has changed between Joshua and Jesus. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he's cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. 
They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O glorious Lord, your right hand shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. The blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. In a way, it takes a musician, almost more than a theologian, in order to express the sense of the emotion of that, the energy of that, the power of that. The Israelites are singing because their lives were almost lost. And God saved them. And that palpable emotional sense that they really have been saved. Now, as brothers and sisters in Christ and seekers, can we see a connection here? That we understand that God in Christ, I mean, Romans was our study before Exodus, Understand that we really are saved by faith through grace in Christ Jesus. And that his atoning sacrifice on our behalf brings about our salvation. And when we understand that, can we sing? Can we express it? Can we actually find that that articulates more closely our heart than even our concepts and our doctrines? Worship takes the narrative redemption and it puts it to music. It anchors the specific song, the truth of the song in the events that God has truly done, what Christ has done for us. And we understand that this, uh, this, psalm, this uh, song is really all about what God has done. And yet there's a section in here about the enemy. In verse 9, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. I, I, I. And God responds to that powerfully, triumphantly, gloriously. And the Israelites ask this question, Who is like you, Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? your majesty and holiness, awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your hand and the earth swallowed them. Henry Mitchell is an African-American pastor, and he has said, if truth goes into your heart on the arm of emotion, it will stay. But if it enters your heart unaccompanied, it will only visit for a short while and then leave. If truth goes into your heart on the arm of emotion, it will stay. But if it enters your heart unaccompanied, it will only visit for a short while and then leave. The person who has the greatest memory in our immediate family is our oldest son, Jeremiah. He's a poet and he's a musician. And somehow he's able to connect truth and experience to to music and to expression in a way that means he remembers. And those who've kind of learned how to sing their faith, who it's so deep and so much a part of who they are that it has to find expression in music, 
in poetry, in song, are people who I think understand the music, they understand the truth. Luther said that the true use of music was to the glorification of God and to the edification of man. Two purposes when we sing, to glorify God and to edify each other, ourselves. And he wrote, we want the we want the beautiful art of music to be properly used to serve our dear Creator and His Christians. He is thereby praised and honored, and we are made better and stronger in the faith when His Holy Word is impressed on our hearts by music. Do you notice that at various stages in that redemptive drama, that it's marked by song. And that's why at Christmas you've got uh, Mary's Magnificat and you've got Zachariah's benediction and you've got Simeon's song and you, you have a sense of well, the glory of God that's sung by the angels. You have all of that song and music. It's like truth just demands it. It's got to find expression. And in the book of Philippians, you have the, uh, the Christ hymn in Philippians 2. And Paul said to the Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And as you teach and admonish one another, as you sing psalms and hymns with spiritual songs, with gratitude in your heart to the Lord. So song is essential, an essential expression of the truth that's rooted in history of what God has done. One last thing to say. Worship confesses that we still are at war. Worship confesses that we still are at war. Don't get any idea, I think, of sort of a recreational kind of spirituality. That I like this kind of Christian stuff on the side. It's a nice kind of condiment, a nice kind of seasoning to my life, this Christian stuff. Now, Exodus 15 is a reality check for us Christians. It really is a life and death struggle. And God really did plant a people through whom to plant a Savior. And it is the eternal the eternal judgment and eternal salvation that is at stake in what we are singing about and what we are expressing. We still are at war. There is a militancy about Jesus and it comes out in our hymnology, it comes out in our worship expression. Karl Barth may have expressed it really well when he said, the militant revolt demanded of Christians. And this distinguishes all kinds of other revolts is not directed against people. Not against the host of unbelievers. Not against false believers. Not against the superstitious. Nor even against the wicked. In terms of their commission, even though they will sometimes clash with all kinds of people in discharging it, they rebel and fight for people, not against people. That's the nature of the Jesus militancy. 
that we really are fighting for the salvation. We're fighting alongside Christ for the salvation of people. The closing picture in the book of Revelation, of Revelation 19, where there's chorus after chorus of hallelujah, hallelujah to the Lord. But the picture is Christ, the one who's faithful and true, riding a horse, the robe of which is dipped in blood. That there is a life and death struggle for the soul of humankind, and the gospel is at the center of it. And what we are about to celebrate at the table is the fact that what God has done in fighting for us is to give himself up. To give himself up is a sacrifice. That which the Passover pointed to. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so what was begun by the Israelites, by God with the Israelites in the Passover from Egypt in the exodus, in the plagues, in the song of Moses and the song of Miriam and Miriam leading the women with tambourines as they danced out this song. And Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord when we lift our voice in praise and adoration. We are mindful of the great historic redemptive event that leads us to sing. And we sing knowing that God is really fighting for us and for our salvation. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.